All right, well, we find ourselves this morning in the last week of our series called The House of God. So far, we've discussed how the house of God should be a place of diversity, should be a place where people from all different generations and ethnicities and economic statuses should be present, just as we'll find in heaven. In week two, we talked about how the house of God should be a place of generosity, where we follow the biblical example of what it means to tithe, but even more than that, we give out of a heart of generosity. And then in week three, we talked about how the house of God should be a place of grace, where we live in the new reality that God has given us, where grace is offered and embraced freely. And today we're discussing how the house of God should be a place of leadership, The question of what does it mean to be a godly leader? And who does God want to lead his church? What is the lens through which we must look if we aspire to lead in the church that God has established for his people? And there's a really important point to start out with here. Remember, this is his church, not man's. God holds the authority over his church, not man. It is God who has the final say in his church, so we must look to him and what he's laid out as an expectation for what it means to lead his church well. Jesus was the leader, amen? He was the leader. And then he also trained up leaders that he left behind who would also train up leaders to continue the advancement of the gospel, It's always been God's design for the church to be led. And so the church is not a place with no direction. It is a place of leadership. And so today we're going to be reading in Titus chapter 1. You can start to turn there in your Bibles if you have a physical one or open on your phone. Or you can read along on the screen with me. But before we dive into it, I want us to understand the context of what we're about to jump into. See, Titus was a man that was in a city called Crete at the time that Paul wrote this letter. Paul had recently been in Crete, in that same city. He was working to establish some new churches in the area. But after he left, there were these false teachers that were infiltrating and influencing these churches. And so Paul wrote to Titus, explaining to him how to make sure that proper leadership was in place. And that's what we're going to read here today. So Paul's describing what it means to be an elder or a pastor overseeing a church in some capacity. So let's jump in. We're starting in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet, of their own, said, Cretans are always liars. They're evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. 
but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. See, it's clear here that this situation was important to Paul, but ultimately to God. There were apparently these men from what was called the circumcision party, which we'll talk about a little bit more later, but these would have been people that practiced the Jewish rituals that were no longer required under the new covenant through Jesus. He says that they must be silenced because they're causing ruckus. They're upsetting people and they're liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. I mean, Paul is pulling no punches here. To call someone an evil beast is pretty strong. So it's clear this situation mattered and needed to be handled. And so Paul is writing to Titus through that lens. This opened the door for the guidelines for godly leadership to be laid out. And I just want to make sure that we all understand here, while there's aspects of our time here this morning that will speak specifically to holding a position of leadership in the church or that office of pastor or elder, this truly applies to all of us. Remember, all of scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching all of us. And so this passage, while it's written to specifically address leadership in the church, it applies to all of us. There's different levels of leadership in life, in family, in community, and in church. And no matter where we are in our walk with Jesus, he wants us to grow. Amen? He wants us to grow into the kind of people and leaders that fully embody what he requires. And so point number one, if you're taking notes this morning, godly leadership requires godly living. Godly leadership requires godly living. So what immediately jumps out of this passage here is that there's a standard for the leadership that God requires. That's why when Pastor David spoke on this a couple months ago, he talked about it being an honorable ambition to aspire to godly leadership because it's a high standard. If there's something on this list that Paul has laid out that's daunting, that's okay. You're certainly not alone in that. First of all, it's healthy to have some respect, right, for this passage of Scripture have some level of reverence for what God says we should aspire to live out if we want to lead. We see that a godly leader must live above reproach, meaning that there isn't some glaring inconsistency about how they profess to live and then how they actually live, that there are some familial requirements, like you have to be a a one-wife man, which might seem kind of odd at first, but you have to understand polygamy in this day and age, in this society that this was written, was not all that uncommon. And God is making clear here it wasn't his design or desire for a godly leader to help build his church with more than one spouse. Paul speaks on how a godly leader's children are raised. It needs to be order in the home. It can't just be the wild, wild west out there, right? And see, and then Paul's list is long and it may seem daunting, but I think there's one requirement in here that kind of culminates so much of what Paul is communicating, that God is communicating through Paul to Titus. So let's look at verse 7. Just five words. He must not be arrogant. He must not be arrogant. See, arrogance impedes spiritual progress. A godly leader cannot be arrogant. That can't come as some surprise to us, right? I mean, we've seen that all throughout Scripture. God is consistent through all of Scripture. Not only does it impede our progress spiritually, it also affects our relationship with God. I'm sure many of us have heard James 4, 6, right? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Pride is at the center of much of our sinfulness. It's at the root of what a lot of this list 
contains. See, Paul talks about being, not being quick-tempered. A quick temper many times flows from a heart that is intent on its own desires and not the needs of others, or can't be a drunkard or violent. A lot of times that stems from just a desire to feed our own wants and not considering others. He must not be greedy for gain. I think that speaks specifically to pride, right? And then we have what Paul shares are the positive qualities of a spiritual leader. Must be above reproach. He should be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, and holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught. All of these qualities take the focus of a person's life being on God and others resisting pride. It's hard to be hospitable when we're living in selfishness, right? It's hard to love what is good and live upright and holy when we're not looking primarily to the one who is good, holy, and upright. It's tough to be self-controlled when we live for self. It's hard to hold fast to the word when we hold fast to our own words above scripture. Living a godly life requires a resistance to pride and a pursuit of humility. While pride impedes spiritual progress, humility fuels it. Humility is the fan that flames the fire of our holiness. As we humble ourselves before God, he works in mighty ways and in through us. Consider again, James 4, 6, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Catch that. Grace comes through humility, not pride. God's grace comes through humility. How do we even enter into a relationship with God in the first place? Through humility, right? I mean, it takes humility to say, I've sinned against a holy God and I need forgiveness. It takes humility to say, God, I need you more than I need me. See, the way of salvation itself is the cross, the greatest display of humility the world has ever seen. So we have to understand that in order to grow in our relationship with God, we must seek humility. And out of the depths of a humble heart, God can do incredible things. And it can flow what Paul describes who a spiritual leader should and should not be. Let's look down to verse 10. It says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Again, insubordination, deceit, lying, gluttons. These are the result of pride. Paul even shares that some of the worst examples of the way we shouldn't be living are of the circumcision party. What does that mean? See, the circumcision party would have been Christians that came from a Jewish background. The reason that they were so detrimental to the advancement of the gospel was, we see what Paul describes here in verse 14, is they preached a necessity to observe the Jewish law. That's important for a bunch of different reasons. But let me, I have a quote here that I think really explains this well. They tried to persuade them that the simple story of Jesus and the cross was not sufficient. But that to be really wise, they needed all the subtle stories and the long genealogies and the elaborate allegories of the rabbis. Further, they tried to teach them that grace was not enough. But that to be really good, they needed to take upon themselves all the rules and regulations about foods and washings, which were so characteristic of Judaism. Their very desire to push away the free gift of grace and think that it's up to us to earn our own salvation takes us away from humility and toward pride. 
See, as we look through the rest of this passage, we see Paul telling Titus how to handle these people that are trying to attack the true gospel. He says, starting in verse 13, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. They may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of the people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. See, point number two is that godly leadership requires a commitment to Scripture. Godly leadership requires a commitment to Scripture. This is a strong language for sure, right? I mean, Paul is saying that there is a problem that needs to be addressed. These teachers are saying that there's more to the gospel than what Jesus declared himself. He's saying there's an active threat to the people understanding the good news of the gospel that marks the church, and it needs to be addressed. And it needs to be addressed by telling them that what they are preaching is wrong. It doesn't align with scripture. It's harming people that you're preaching it to. And see, again, in in chapter 2, in Titus 2.15, he says, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. There's this relationship here of exhort and rebuke. The point is to stand for truth means both addressing what is wrong about what's being taught and then also declaring what is right. It requires a denial of what is false and a promotion of what is true. And there is only one place we can look to discern the difference. Amen? That's Scripture. Let's read verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The source of absolute truth is Scripture. The source of absolute truth is Scripture. Godly leadership is only possible through a pursuit of truth by reading, knowing, applying, and living the word of God. Any other standard is no standard at all. Our very belief system is based on how God has revealed himself in his own word. So naturally, it would be that same place that we would go to understand him as he desires us to live as godly people, godly leaders. We cling to the truth of God's word. We declare it as it is. We stand against the denial of it. For starters, it's to protect the gospel. Remember, Paul is, he said this stuff they're preaching is hurting people. It's upsetting families. It's the gospel must be protected so that people are not led astray from the gospel as revealed by God. But it's also to correct and to build up those that don't know the truth of scripture. Verse 13, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. The goal here is the soundness of faith. The goal is the soundness of faith. It's not to destroy someone. It's actually to build them up by helping them see what Scripture says, to help them grow in faith with the proper understanding of the Word. When we come to the Word with a humble heart and we apply its truth, we find ourselves living the way that God identifies a godly leader here in this passage It sparks hospitality. It sparks loving what is good. It sparks being self-controlled. It sparks being upright and living as a holy and disciplined person. The purpose of the truth of Scripture is to help us to grow into these types of people. And please understand, the process of becoming like Christ is not instantaneous. Does anybody know that's true? Like there's a process to this. When you look at this list and you think, man, 
I just don't live up to all that. You're not alone. It's not like the standard is low. What God calls us to in very nature is to be like Christ, to lay ourselves down. That's a process over time. We don't come to Christ and immediately embody and exemplify all of these things. It takes time. It takes a deepening of our relationship with God. It takes a consistent pursuit to know him truly. You're not going to decide to be all these things by perfect measure just by the power of your own strength. It's something that only God can do in us as we pursue him. So don't be discouraged if you find yourself where you don't want to be when it comes to this, these traits of a godly leader. Receive the grace that you've been given. What we just talked about last week, Pastor David unpacked what it means to be a house of grace. Pursue Jesus. He'll make us more like us in time. And these traits of a godly leader will become more concrete in the way that we live our lives. I heard someone say, this was really helpful recently, if you want to grow in one of these traits, if there's something in scripture you want to grow in, then just focus on that one thing. They said it's better to live your whole life memorizing and knowing and living one verse of scripture than to think that you know it all and actually not live according to it in any way. They said, focus on that thing. If you want to grow in humility, focus on that thing. Read about it. Study what humility looks like in the people that God used in Scripture. Pray about it. Ask God to show you how to grow in that area. Seek opportunities to live it. If you want to be less quick-tempered, then ask God to help you focus on that. Look for the triggers that set you off. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you why does that response even exist inside of you in the first place. He's faithful to do those things. He wants us to be growing. It helps, him, helps us to know him even more. It helps us to experience him more fully. And remember, no matter where you are in your walk with Jesus, there's room to grow. Whether you're a new believer or you're somebody that's been walking with Jesus for 70 years, there is still room for us to grow. Got to remember, we're not looking to be better than other people. We're looking to be like Jesus. It's not this race against each other to be more holy than the person next to you. It's just a pursuit to be more like Jesus. That's the goal. That means that there's always room to grow. But in order to experience growth, we have to desire it. And point number three, godly leadership requires godly ambition. There's a researcher by the name of Carol Dweck. And what she does is she's a, a person that studies human motivation and mindset. And this is a really interesting statistic. She says that only 40% of people have what she would say is a growth mindset. She says that having a growth mindset means that a person's abilities can be improved through effort, learning, and persistence. To put it simpler, a person without a growth mindset would simply say, it is what it is. Who I am is who I am, and there's nothing that's going to change it. So that means if her statistic is correct, that means that 60% of us live life thinking that all we are is all we ever could be. 60% of us come to church with no intention or desire to grow. 60% of us don't live with the mindset that God has more for us than where we are. Titus 2, starting in verse 11, says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. The grace of God has appeared for which people? All people. The grace of God has appeared and been sent from God to train all of us in what it means to live a godly life. Purifying us to be the people who are zealous for good works. That's what God wants to do in us. See, the grace of God is not a one-time event. God's grace continuously forms us more and more into who he has purposed us to be. Salvation and sanctification. Salvation and sanctification. The grace of God works to bring us to him and make us more like him. And so, yes, no matter where we are in our walk with Jesus, there is room to grow. But we've got to desire it. Maybe it's in your workplace. Maybe you're a leader or you desire to be a leader at work. Strive to be a godly leader. Seek to be one that embodies what God lays out here for godly leadership. As a leader for your children, seek to be a godly parent. I think many of us could admit there's room to grow here. I know it's true for me. And things like being quick-tempered and teaching them the word. Let's not just be parents. Let's be godly parents. Or maybe you're here thinking leadership in the church is something that you aspire to. That's awesome. It's an admirable ambition. You're wondering, how do I do that? How could I even take the steps necessary to pursue something like that? How could I grow to a place where God could use me in a place like eldership or pastoring? Well, the first step is taking ownership that this is your church. Making the commitment that this is going to be the place where you and your family come week after week. That you say, I know that there's some other things that pull our attention on a Sunday morning, but we're going to commit to just be here. This is going to be our church body. It's not going to be a place that we just come sometimes. It's going to be a place that we are and are a part of. And then the next step would be, this is my church, so I give and I serve. We start to embody what it looks like to be a house of generosity, to apply the biblical teaching of tithing to support our church financially and what God is trying to do through it, to be generous in the way that we serve with our time and the talents that God has given us. And number three, God wants me to grow spiritually, so I'm in small groups. I don't just come to church. I don't just serve. I don't just give. In order for this to be really my church and to experience it the way that God has designed it is to be doing life with other people, to be in a small group, to be understanding what the church looks like on a daily basis. And then number four would be God wants me to be ready for spiritual leadership, so I'm apprenticing to become a leader in small groups. We have an awesome program where people can go through. It's called Apprenticeship 101, where you sit alongside a small group leader. It teaches you, I think it's a, about a six-month process or so, sometimes up to a year, where you sit alongside a small group leader and figure out what does it take to lead a group well? How do I lead a discussion? How can I be encouraging people to grow in their faith, not just when we meet for an hour and a half in our home, but also in daily life? How do I support people? How do I help them grow and pursue Jesus? And then maybe step five would be God wants me to be leading spiritually, so I'm a small group leader. You apprentice, and then you take that step to become a person that God entrusts to lead a small group of people to become more like Jesus. Does anybody in here appreciate their small group leader? Let's give them a hand. Let's just do that. See, there's, small group leaders are a big deal. 
Like in a church our size, Pastor David can't meet with everybody all the time. That would be an unrealistic expectation. But God has allowed us to operate inside this design where there are people that he has raised up to lead people inside of homes all through our city, through Columbus, surrounding areas. There's so many different leaders that have decided to take that step and they pour into the people that are in their group. They pour into them as they gather in their homes and unpack the word. They care about what their lives truly consist of. They're pushing people to be more like Jesus. They're a listening ear when times are tough. They're there to prop you up and to help lead you forward when life is hard. See, small group leaders are so important. And that's something that we could aspire to do if we want to walk through this path of leadership. And then there's men that are already doing those things. You find yourself here, you say, I feel like I'm, I'm growing as a small group leader. I've been leading a small group for quite some time. I wonder what that next step would look like. Maybe that's starting to learn to preach and teach. Maybe that would be pursuing vocational or part-time ministry, or maybe that would be training to become a lay elder in the church. And if that's you, I want to tell you about this new this new program we're starting here called The Path. The church should have a way for you to pursue this ambition. So we're starting a men's group that'll have semi-regular meetings roughly every other month. We're gonna get together and talk about what spiritual leadership looks like in family and in life and community and in church. You can request to join. If you go onto the app, you can find the link there. There's a, a picture pretty close to the top. You click into that and you can request to join to go through this process of what it means to be a spiritual leader. So whenever this group is meeting, Pastor David is going to send out information to all who have requested to join. If that's something you want to pursue, check that out on the app. Pray about it. Ask God if that's a step he wants you to take. But if you're not quite there, there's opportunities for everyone. If you attend and you serve and you give, we need small group apprentices. We need host homes. We're starting to get to the place where our small groups are maxing out. You know, if 20 families were to come and join a small group this term, we'd be completely maxed out. And that doesn't mean new families. That means 20 families that already called this church their home began to go to small groups, we'd be maxed out. And so we need people that would be willing to open up their home. We need people that would be willing to learn what it takes to become a small group leader. And so this opportunity is available to you if that's something that you'd want to pursue, if you feel like God has given you a tug on your heart to pursue what godly leadership would look like, if you want to take that next step, you're growing in your faith, you call this church your home, you serve, you give of your time, you're opening up your home or leading a small group, and you want to take that next step, I just want to make sure you know that's available to you and it's starting very soon. But I think it's really important for us to understand The gospel is what makes any of this possible. All these things are so important to strive to become. And yes, it's a, it's a process of sanctification. But what's important is the first step. What's most important is the first step. And I don't know everybody here this morning, so I don't know if you come here today with an understanding of the gospel. I don't know if you come here today with an understanding of what Christ has done for you. And so I just wanna make clear for you that there's a holy God that desires all your heart. There is a God that has created all of the universe 
And he, dealt, he, he knelt down into the dust of the ground and formed you into his likeness. And when he was done, he said it was good. He breathed life into the very nostrils of man. And that's true for you. There is a God that so desires your heart that he was willing to say there is nothing that's going to separate me from my children. We all have baggage. We all have sin. We have all sinned against a holy God, but there's nothing he's not willing to overcome to get a hold of your heart and take you on this journey of what it means to follow him. And so I just want to make sure that nobody walks out of here this morning not understanding the God that wants a hold of your heart. It's a love that you've never known. A love that you can't comprehend unless you get it from him. A love that will knock down every single wall of your heart if you allow it to. A love that will help you feel cared for when you're cared for by the God of all creation. And so I want you to just close your eyes and bow your heads for just a moment. Just, just let it sink in. The gospel is where we start this whole process and the gospel is where we continuously return to become more like him. So if you're here this morning and you've never taken that step, I want to just encourage you to take time to think about who this God is, to understand what he feels about you. Yes, there's sin. Yes, there's this baggage. Yes, there's these things that separate us from him, but there's nothing that he doesn't want to overcome to get a hold of your heart. And this morning, if you've never made that decision, there may be a nudge in your heart to respond. And I just want you to take that step. There's no greater decision than giving yourself to God. And so take a moment just to speak to him. Maybe say something along the lines of, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've sinned against you. I know that I've even run from you in my life. But today, I'm asking for you to bridge the gap between you and me. I'm asking you to make me the man, the woman that you have created me to be. I'm asking you to help me allow you to take the reins of my life and to come into my heart and sit on the throne where you deserve to be. I know I've fallen. I know I've failed. But you are faithful to meet me where I am and save me. So God, would you please do it? I welcome you, Jesus, as Savior. I welcome you, God, as Father. And I choose to follow you all the rest of my days, wherever you lead. And please understand, if you've already made that decision, the gospel is where we continue to come back to day in and day out to find what it means to be a godly man, a godly woman, to become a godly leader in our home, in our church, in our community, in life. The gospel is the fuel to become all that he's created us to be. And so if you've made that decision here this morning, I just want to encourage you to let us know. 
Maybe go out into the Connect Center, out in the lobby. Let somebody know that you've prayed that prayer, that you've decided that you want to be all in on Jesus. And somebody's going to follow up and pray for you, help you take the next steps, put a Bible in your hand, and show you what it means to read the Word of God and pursue Him with your life. But let's strive to be the people that God has called and created us to be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are and who we are in you. We thank you that you don't leave us where you found us. I think about that lost sheep. that made his way out from the 99 trying to find his own way trying his best through the wilderness to find some rest and peace and Jesus you and your compassion left the 99 to go after the one and so we just want to thank you Lord Jesus that you'd be so willing to go after the one that goes astray. Think about the prodigal son and how he left the abundance of his father's estate to go try to find peace on his own, to find happiness in his own way and ultimately ended up finding himself distraught and in despair and came running home and his father met him right where he was on the way, embraced him, told him welcome home it's time to celebrate God I hope and pray that you have done that for people here this morning I pray that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation if it's been years since we first made that commitment that you would help us to understand that it's not a one time embrace from our father but it's an everyday embrace from our father that no matter where we go or where we run you will always be chasing us down and you desire for us to be a people who are godly in every way and so I pray that you'd help us to do that. Help us to understand your grace. Help us to be a people of humility and not pride, running to you for all that we need and desire to be. And continue to build your church, Lord, with people that can lead from this place. That's what we all desire to be, Lord. love you so much we want to be like you we want to serve you we want to honor you we want to make sure that you get the glory you're due with all of our lives and in the way that your church is led help us Lord Jesus it's in your name we pray amen